we're going to meet in a couple of different locations in the Word tonight. And so if you've got your copy of God's Word, go ahead and break that out. And I need you to find an earmark, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then after you get to that point, I need you to make your way over to our starting spot, which is going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to launch from tonight. We only have just a couple weeks left in this semester together. Isn't it crazy how fast time seems to go by? I mean, it seems like we were just getting things started in August. At least it seems that way for me. Some of y'all are like, this semester's lasts for forever, right? I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I can't wait for this thing to be over. I've been waiting for it to be over ever since we got about halfway through. But it's, we're at the finish line. We only have a couple of weeks left together. And these last few weeks that, that God has set aside for us to spend with one another, they're going to kind of look a little different in some ways from our typical services that we normally have, I want to kind of dial things back a little bit and just have some teachable moments with you over the next couple of weeks. So I want to ask you a question. How many of you spend time thinking about the future? Not rhetorical, just participation. How many of you spend time thinking about the future? How many of you wish you had the ability to see the future? Wow. More than I thought. How many of you are satisfied with not seeing the future? Just a few? I don't really care to be able to know the future in its fullness. I think the future would terrify me if I had the ability to be able to see it. But there are times, there are moments, I will admit, in which I wish I could choose to see into certain situations. There are seasons of life, there are situations of life, there are circumstances of life that I wish, if I had the opportunity to activate looking into the future abilities that I could choose to do so in those moments. Now, I wouldn't want to just know it all the time, but there are times in which I wish I could have that ability to maybe look into certain situations and maybe look into certain circumstances to know what the outcome is going to end up being. And as I was thinking about you guys over the past week and asking the Lord some things about you, he opens up some specifics to me. And he showed me a cool concept for us to work through that I think is going to be for your benefit in a major way. Especially at your age, there is a lot of thinking and wondering about the future. Would you agree that most of you spend quite a bit of significant time thinking about and looking towards the future of your life? What's going to happen next, the next steps, the next phase? It's almost like the college season of life. If you're not careful, you'll miss it because you're too busy looking to what's going to be, going to be on the other side. And I feel like when I was in the seat that you're in right now, I spent a lot of time thinking about what was going to be on the other side of where I currently was. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to launch into a new mini-series that we're going to call To My Future Self. So imagine if you had the opportunity to kind of write an open letter, if you will, to your future self. And those are some of the things we're going to discuss. I want to talk about some things that your future self would benefit from knowing. Because we all have things, and specifically you guys do, like we mentioned in this season of life that we look towards. And for you specifically, I feel like there are three main things that stand out above the rest. So that's what we're going to discuss together over the next few weeks. Those three main things that I feel like you guys look towards more so than anything else in this season of your life. And these future things, I need you to know, these future things still need Christ and his gospel message to be centrally focused in them. It's fine to look 
forward with expectation and with anticipation to new seasons and new steps of your life. But the gospel and Christ have to remain in the center of those new seasons. I I challenge you guys all the time to keep Christ in the center of your life right now. But I want to challenge you to keep Christ in the center of your life five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, because he has to remain the central focus and the central purpose of our lives because there's a great temptation, or let me say this, I feel like there's a great trap that gets set in front of you guys from our enemy that tempts you to build a future that pushes Jesus out. And a lot of times this gets done unintentionally. A lot of godly young men, a lot of godly young women, they make these plans, they build these plans, they look forward with expectation to the next steps, the next seasons of their life, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in so doing, we get so consumed with what my next steps are going to be and how I'm going to achieve getting myself to those next places that we push Jesus out in the process. And I don't want that to be the case for any one of you guys, so I need you to hear this up front. And as we go through this over the next few weeks, maybe if you don't hear anything else that comes out of my mouth, I want you to hear this one specific thing. The foundations of your future get poured in your present. What you pour now forms later. And the most basic example I can give you is the seat that you're sitting in right now is sitting on top of carpet, which is laid on top of a concrete slab that was poured at the very beginning of the foundations of this building being built. Where you sit right now sits on top of something that was poured and then formed so now that you can sit on it. In the same way, guys, the foundations of your future get poured in your present right now. These future selves that we're going to look at, pour Jesus now so they'll be formed around him later. That being said, let's get into the first few ones. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, you're going to find out real quick kind of where we're going. Paul, writing to these believers, says, wives... Submit to your own husbands, ask to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let he see, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So let's talk about you future wives for a moment. No, this is not the beginning of a relationship series. This is a standalone one-time thing that I want you ladies to take in because I would dare say that, and I'm not saying that you're not in here, 
But I think we would be hard-pressed to find a lady in this room that isn't looking forward to or desiring to be married one day. I'm not saying you're not sitting out there. So don't come up to me afterwards and be like, I ain't looking for no man. I'm fine being single the rest of my life. That's fine. We're going to get to that a little bit later too. So just hold on. We'll get there. But I would say the vast majority of you ladies sitting in here tonight are looking for Mr. Wright. But before we get there, let's talk about forming you into Mrs. Wright. Future wives. Future wives. You guys, you need to be preparing yourself now to fulfill that role in a God-honoring way. And the Bible paints a very clear picture for us of what a godly woman, of what a godly wife is to be. And what we find in the beginning of the passage that we just read outlines that quite well. And we're going to go to another passage here in a minute and get a little more on it. But in Ephesians 5, Paul gives us a couple of verses that outlines what a godly wife is to be. So if you go back and you look in the first couple of verses that we read in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, ask of the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So a godly wife, first and foremost, submits to her husband as the leader of the marriage and the home. Now, hear me on this, ladies. This is not the world's definition of submission. Don't let the world hijack what God has defined as something that is good and ordained by giving it a tainted definition. The world will tell you, ladies, that submission is a form of weakness. It's a form of invalidation. It's debasing yourself. It's being inferior to your husband. It's, it's being underneath his rule with his you know, iron fist, and you just do whatever he wants you to do. You have babies, and you clean the house, and you cook dinner, and you do all these things. You pay the bills. You mow the grass. Just whatever your husband tells you to do is what you do. That is not a biblical definition or understanding of what submission is. So I don't want you ladies to see this term in God's word and think, submit. I don't think so. I'm a strong, independent woman. I ain't got no man tell me what to do. That's not what God is saying. He is not making that point. A, a submissive wife submits to the husband as the leader of the home. And so listen to me. You don't submit as an inferior. This does not mean that you are inferior. God's word is very clear. At the beginning of time, he created Adam and he created Eve. And it tells us in Genesis that they were both equally created in the image of God. Key word being equally God sees man and woman as being equal. So this is not an oppressive thing. This is not an inadequate thing. This is not an inferior thing. This is not a power or authority thing. The way God designed marriage, he just ordained it that the man would be the head of the household. And so you wives, you put yourself underneath his leadership. Paul says you submit in the way that the church submits to Christ. Do we see the church's submission unto Christ as being a negative thing? Then there you go. If you submit unto your husband in the same way as the church submits to Christ, then how can it be a negative or a bad or ugly thing? It can't be. It's actually a beautiful thing. And it actually causes the relationship to flourish. When a church submits itself to the headship of Christ, that church flourishes. Why is when you submit yourself to the headship of your husband in that relationship who is honoring God, you flourish? 
the relationship flourishes. The marriage flourishes. Your home flourishes. So get the bad taste of this word submit out of your mouth of the word that the world might have put in there and get the good taste of it from the word instead. Wives are to be supporters. You're to be encouragers. You're to be respecters. You're to be lovers of your husband. So let's flip over to Proverbs 31, right? You had to know that was coming, right, ladies? Proverbs 31, let's pick out a few things about a wife. I'm going to start in verse 10. And Solomon is writing this, and he's actually writing this about his wife and specifically. And so listen to what he says about her. He says, an excellent wife who can find. So he says, first and foremost, it's not an easy thing necessarily to find an excellent godly wife. But when you do, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she lasts at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Ladies, this is the kind of future wife that you should be striving to be. Now, I'm not going to pull it out verse by verse, and I'm going to give you an overview of the other characteristics that we see of what a godly wife is supposed to look like. So in Proverbs 31, we see that she is trustworthy. She is good. She has a strong work ethic. She's not just idle. She doesn't just lay around the house. She gets after it. And she has a strong work ethic. She nurtures. She is wise in her decision makings. She is unselfish. She takes care of herself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. She betters her husband. And she fears the Lord. Now, it's a pretty exhaustive list. Wouldn't you agree, ladies? It's almost like, I love when people read the Proverbs. I know what y'all think. I love when people read Proverbs 31 because who could actually be that woman? Well, apparently Solomon's woman attained to it. And so if she can, can you not? Through the Spirit of God, through his work in your life, through his direction, through his guidance, can he not mold you into that kind of a woman? Absolutely he can. And so these are all the characteristics of what a godly wife is to attain to. And so for you, you ladies sitting here, you desire to be a, a future wife one day, here is you a perfect template of what to fit into that will honor God, that will honor your household, that will honor your husband, and that will glorify him in the process. You should strive to be this kind of a woman. Matter of fact, 
Let me show you a good example, a living example of what a wife should be like. Sitting on the back wall back there is mine. And I can take liberty here because she's mine. And for you ladies that desire to be a God-honoring future wife one day, there's you a great example to live by. That woman back there, she loves, she encourages, she supports, she respects, she pushes me to be better in all ways. She works and works and works to provide for our family, to take care of our son. She fears the Lord. She humbles herself in order to elevate others. And she'll tell you that, guess what? It isn't always easy. Is it, babe? Especially in our house, in particular with me. As a matter of fact, I asked her the other day in the car we were going to get Graham. I said, babe, what are some things that you would have wanted to tell your future self as a wife? So if you had the opportunity to tell your future self as a future wife some particular things, what would those things be? And here's some of the things that she shared with me. She says, always make your expectations known. So take this in, ladies. She says, voice them to your husband. Even if you think it should be obvious or it isn't comfortable for you to do so, it's unfair to be mad or upset with him over not meeting an expectation he doesn't know exists. It's not always easy to be a God-honoring wife with stubborn husbands. It can be very difficult, and your communication is key. And it's not fair to put unrealistic expectations upon him, especially when he is unaware that he should be meeting them. She also gave this advice. Too. She says, refrain from jumping into husband, what she refers to as husband bashing sessions with your friends. And I know some of y'all are thinking, I would never. Please. That's all Starbucks is. She says, always use your words to honor your husband privately and publicly. If you expect other people to honor and respect him, that needs to begin with you. It will be very easy, ladies, one day to jump on your husband's head for being stupid. Especially when you get amongst other wife friends. I've heard, I promise you, I've heard real-life conversations inside of restaurants, a booth over of women doing this very thing. Well, let me tell you what he did the other day. Refrain from that. A godly wife, a God-honoring wife, doesn't insert herself into those things. And the last thing she shared was, on the days when you're focused on all the things he didn't do or get done, remember to focus on all the little things he did do and does do daily that you may miss. It's not always easy. It's not going to be always easy to be a godly wife. But if you can pour these biblical principles into your life now, then it can be something that is attained and achieved. Listen to me. Pour it now, ladies. Pour it now so it will be formed later. Don't wait until you're married one day to start trying to figure out how to be a godly wife. Figure it out beforehand. And then you can make adjustments along the way. Pour it now. It'll be formed later. All right, ladies, you're off the hook. I'm going to talk to the guys a little bit. Let's talk about future husbands. Once again, the Bible paints a clear picture of what a godly man and husband is to be. So godly husbands, let's check it out back in Ephesians chapter 5. Again, let's reread the passage. In verse 25, Paul directs his attention to the men. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So let's talk, men, for a minute about being a godly husband. Really, above all else, this is what a godly husband does. He loves his wife. Everything else, men, flows from that point. Love your wife, and everything else comes out of that. And so with that comes a lot of different aspects, a lot of different characteristics of that particular love. And I want to show you what those things are from the passage that we just read. So a godly husband, he loves unconditionally. Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he goes on to say, and gave himself up for her. So how does Christ love his church? Well, he loves his church with an unconditional love. There is nothing that we as a church could do to, to gain God's love, to earn God's love, to deserve God's love, to be worthy of God's love. He just gives it unconditionally. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives in that unconditional manner. She shouldn't have to earn your love. She shouldn't have to deserve your love. She shouldn't have to merit your love. She shouldn't have to be worthy of your love. You just love her unconditionally because she is your wife. But then you love her sacrificially as well. And that's what Paul means when he goes on, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what kind of love did Jesus have for his church? He had an unconditional love, but he also had a sacrificial love in the fact that he went to the cross and gave up his life physically, literally, because of his love for his bride, which would be the church. So in the same way, man, you love your wife sacrificially. Any man, and let's talk about this in a literal sense, for just a moment, any man who would not sacrifice literally his own life for his wife is no man. But beyond that, you love your wife in sacrificial ways otherwise, which means that you might sacrifice going to the golf course every weekend. You might sacrifice hunting and fishing every weekend. I know what it's like right now to sit in your shoes. Trust me. I know what it's like to be, be in college, to have that freedom, to do your guy things whenever you wanted to do them, wherever you wanted to do them, with whoever you wanted to do them with. I know what that freedom was like. Trust me, every waking moment when I was in this seat and I got to go hunt and I got to go fish or I got to go golf, I went and did those things. When you get married, that changes. You sacrifice some of the things that you enjoy. You sacrifice the amount of time that you spend on those things. Why? For the betterment of your wife. Because there's things that she needs. There's attention that she needs. There's times where you need to go out together and hang out with one another instead of hanging out with the dudes. Sometimes you got to sit at home and watch the notebook instead of going over and watching the ball game. It just works like that. And some of you men right now, if you're already thinking, I don't know about all this stuff, then you probably don't need to worry about the rest of this conversation you got to be able to love sacrificially. you got to be able to give up sacrifice for the betterment of your wife because that's what Christ did. But he also loves in a spiritual way. So as Paul went on in the passage, he talks about how Christ did all this so that he might sanctify her. So in other words, he might set apart his bride. Christ did these things so that we could be redeemed and we could then be set apart and we could be credited with his righteousness so that one day when he presents his bride before his father, she's sanctified. 
She's holy. She's righteous. She's been made clean. So in the same way, man, you love your wife spiritually, which means that you take care of her spiritual walk. That doesn't mean you walk her spirituality out for her. And ladies, you need to understand, too, that it's not your husband's responsibility to make sure that you have a quiet time. He can't force you to do that. He cannot force you to spend time in the Word. He shouldn't have to drag you out the door to go to church. He shouldn't have to, to constantly, constantly, constantly keep tabs on whether or not you're growing spiritually. You have a responsibility in your own walk to do those things. But, man, you do exercise oversight in that way. Your wife should be able to see your life being lived out in a spiritual, God-honoring, God-pursuing way so that it inspires her to do the same. So you love your wife spiritually. You, you check up on her. You make sure that she is growing spiritually. And, and I just say this, too, because I think it's a stigma that young couples, young godly couples, they think, especially some of you ladies, you might think this, but you're like, oh, I can't wait to get married one day to this God-honoring man. And it's just going to be so awesome because every day we're going to come home and we're going to have husband and wife Devo together. And then we're going to kneel down at the end of our bed before every night. And we're going to hold hands. We're going to pray with each other. And it's just going to be the most awesome spiritual experience ever. That may not be reality. It may not work out like that. Me and Ashley, we don't sit down at the table at the end of the day and, and walk through Galatians together. You know, that's just the reality. That's the, that's the dynamic of our relationship. But you can still keep tabs on each other spiritually. You can still check in on each other spiritually. Husbands, you can still make sure your wife is growing spiritually without sitting her down and telling her, all right, babe, we're going to start a, an expository store, uh, study on the book of Ephesians. Make sure that she's growing. Make sure that you're holding her accountable to living the life that she's supposed to be living in the same way as she is going to be holding you accountable to living the life you're supposed to be living. Love your wife spiritually. But then a godly husband also loves his wife provisionally. So we're told in Ephesians that Christ loved his church, that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And then Paul goes on to say this, love your wife's husband as your own body. Let me ask you guys something. When you get thirsty, what do you do? You find a drink. When you get hungry, what do you do? Find something to eat. If you're like me here recently, you start getting fat, what do you do? You find some motivation, you go back to the gym. You take care of some things. When your body has needs, you meet those needs for your body. When you get home from a long day of work and you're nasty and you're filthy and you're sweaty, and you stink, what do you do? You take a shower and you clean up. You take care of your own body. You provide for your own body. Paul says take those same principles and apply them to how you provide for your wife. Any need that she has, you go and help meet it for her. You provide for her in that manner. You make sure that she does not go without want. You make sure that she does not go without need. By whatever means, you work, you provide, and you help sustain your household. So in the same way, guys, that... Your wife is going to do these things for you. You also return these things for her as well. On top of all this love, you support her, you encourage her, and you respect her as well. And please, please hear me on this. God-honoring, God-seeking men and husbands are going extinct. I don't know if you realize it or not. But these kind of men, this, this kind of man that we're talking about tonight, he's actually going extinct. 
one of the main discouragements that I hear from godly young women is that they can't find godly future husbands. Can I say that again for you men? One of the main discouragements that I hear from godly young women is that they cannot find godly future husbands. So in other words, men, they are on the prowl. They are looking. They are searching. They are desiring. They are making themselves available. But they can't find you. So this tells me that if you become this kind of man that fills out this template, odds are in your favor, bro. Things just started looking up for you. And I promise you, you don't even have to be the best looking cat. You start walking with God, you start honoring God, you start developing into what she sees as a godly future husband, whoop, they're going to be on you. I promise. We have got, men, we have got to start developing ourselves spiritually into the men of God that his word outlines that we are to be. So many men fall into this mindset of thinking that being a good husband means providing for my wife or children with good money to live a comfortable, enjoyable life on. But God doesn't say anything like that. Men, there is nothing wrong with busting your butt to find a good job and a good career to make good money so that your family can have a comfortable life. I'm not knocking that one bit. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that whatsoever. I'm just saying that God's word doesn't focus on that thing. God's word doesn't state anything like that. Go back and look at verse 25. Look at what God's word says. It says, husbands, love your wives. That's the focus. That's the point. So men, all these things that we have talked about, being someone who loves his wife, who loves her unconditionally, sacrificially, spiritually, provisionally, supporting her, encouraging her, respecting her. Start pouring all these things now so they'll be formed later when it's a need. All right, one last thing, because I haven't forgot, and it's going to be important for some of you down the road. Let's talk about you future singles. And don't be getting depressed about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to jump around a little bit. But take a look at verse 7. Paul is writing this passage, and Paul himself was a single man. So listen to what he has to say on the matter. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. He's referring to his singleness in the context of this passage. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now skip over to verse 17 where he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Let's skip over to verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord 
how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The reality is, quite possibly, for some of you in this room tonight, your future self may not be found in being married to anybody. And if that is the case, your future self needs to know it's okay to be single. It's all right. Nobody thinks you're crazy. You don't have to be committed. You're not going to be institutionalized because of your singleness. And so there are some things as a single, as a future single, so if some of you end up not getting married in this room, I want you to hear some of these encouragements and maybe take some of these things down in case you find yourself in that situation. I want you to know that according to God's word, your singleness should be seen as a gift that's good. So Paul talks about marriage, and he also talks about singleness. He refers to marriage as being a gift from God, but he also refers to singleness as such as well. He says each has his own gift from God. So you married people in the future, you have a gift from God, which is marriage. You single people in the future, you have a gift from God, which is singleness. So if Paul, of all people, can see singleness as being a gift, then we should view it in the same light and within the same manner. So let's find another encouragement in that, which is this. Singleness is not God's punishment. It's God's purpose. Go back and look at verse 17. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. To be married holds with it a calling from God. But listen to me. To be single holds with it a calling as well. Both have their own calling and their own purpose and their own path and their own plan that God has set out for you specifically. And I feel like you guys need to hear this because you might find yourself in the situation one day where the pressure, 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 pressure is to get married. Marry, 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 marry. And if it just does not seem to happen, then so often we begin to think that this is some form of punishment that God has placed upon our lives for some past way in which we've acted, for some past mistakes that we possibly have made. And now God is being the mean kid sitting on top of the anthill with a magnifying glass, singling us out and watching us burn and fry underneath the heat and the pressure of not being able to find a future spouse. And we think he's punishing us. With singleness. But it's actually his purpose for your life. You will have, as a single person, opportunities that married people can't access. Paul says the married people are worried about worldly things. They're worried about how to please, a man's worried about how to please his wife. The wife's worried about how to please her husband. But when you're unmarried, you don't have any of those anxieties. You don't have any of those responsibilities. You don't have any of those obligations. And Paul kind of saw it like this. He, he, Paul moved all over the place all the time. And so I think he saw it in this regard. He said, if I want to go to Antioch, I just go. If I want to go to Philippi on a mission trip, I go. If I want to go to Ephesus on a mission trip and plant a church, I go. If I want to go to Colossae and plant a church and disciple people, I go. And I don't have to ask for anybody's permission. I don't have to make sure that my family is taken care of while I'm gone. 
I don't have to worry about if they're being provided for while I'm there. I don't have to call back home. There's never any moment where Paul had to go off to the side and he's like, hey guys, I'll be with you in a minute. We'll get the worship service started. Let me FaceTime my family real quick and make sure everything's going all right. He says, as a single man, I didn't have any of those things to worry about. I just went and I did. It was a great opportunity for missions. It was a great opportunity for ministry. So that's what I'm saying. As a future single, quite possibly, God's giving you that as a purpose so you can access things that married people can't. You have the freedom to go. There are no restraints. There are no obligations. There are no responsibilities that you have to make sure are taken care of. So see it as a gift to be able to go and do those things that other people can't that are bound to a relationship on this earth. And then I want to say this too. Singleness is not a pass for selfishness, but a platform for service. I think a lot of people, the temptation becomes, and it, it stems from the view, I think, that they saw their singleness as a punishment and not a purpose. That because of that, well, because I am single, well, I'm just going to be selfish. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it with whoever I want to do it with, and if that involves some form of serving God in the process, then maybe I'll mix a little bit of that in. And that's completely backwards from how God desires for it to work itself out in your life. Singleness is not a pass for selfishness, but a platform for service. We have a good number of men and women in this church that are single adults. And you want to know who our best, most active, most reliable, most counted upon servants are in this church? Singles. You can count on the singles in this church to be there, to serve, to work, to volunteer. So many of our greatest servants in this church are single men and single women. Why? Because they know that's their purpose. It's not their punishment. It's the purpose that God has placed upon their lives to give them opportunities to do things that other people can't. And they use it to their advantage. Poor now so that it will be formed later. You guys have a future self in some regards in one of these areas. You will either be a future husband, you will either be a future wife, or you may be a future single. You're going to find yourself in one of those three places at some point in time. So pour the things of God into your life now that frames these things up so that it will be formed when you find yourself in those seasons and you're ready to hit the ground running to honor God. Because here's the thing, you guys, you don't realize it as much now, but time is a funny thing. And before you know it, your future is going to be your present. And this present is going to be your past. So the time to pour is now. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for his glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.